Welcome to the Winner's Circle. I'm Akshay, joined with my co-host Ankit, and we're here with Kulveer Tagar. For those of you who don't know Mr. Tagar, he's a British entrepreneur who is the founder and CEO of Zeus Living, as well as several other ventures. He's also an, an angel investor in many innovative startups. Hey, Mr. Tagar, how's it going? How's your Friday? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. How are you guys? We're doing great. So I wanted to start off just... Um, with your most like recent company, Zeus Living. Can you just tell me a little bit more about it? Sure. Um, so our vision is to create a world where people can live wherever they want, whenever they want, outside of all of the traditional constraints you get in the housing market. So, so what I mean by that is our product is this beautifully furnished home that you can rent for three months, six months, nine months, um, and when you show up at the home, it's fully provisioned, it's furnished, the utilities are set up uh, and, and that. So um, we're, we're just trying to reimagine the, the rental market. And you know, my own background, I've moved countries four times. And I remember what the rental process was like for me when I moved to San Francisco to do Y Combinator for the first time in 2007. And it's just, you know, signing these 12 month, 24 month leases and you don't really know your landlord that well, or you don't know the building or area that well, and there's not much flexibility. So we're trying to build a product that gives you all of that flexibility and freedom back uh, when you choose to live somewhere. Um, I was just wondering, so um, are you guys, would you say you're a competitor of Airbnb? Because it sounds a lot like it's pretty similar to that, like that type of business. Um, I wouldn't say so. So uh, Airbnb are investors of ours. The way we think about it is they're a demand channel. So mm-hmm. people find us on Airbnb, but we're a vertically integrated operator. And again, I think the reason why we started this or why this opportunity exists is because when you're staying someplace for a longer time, you know your your threshold or your bar for the experience you want is much higher than maybe when you just go for a weekend trip somewhere. And, you know, then you can use a hotel, you can use Airbnb. When you're living somewhere for six months, then, you know, you need a certain standard. And that's what we provide. So we put a lot of thought into designing the home, the experience, you know, especially with with what's happened with the pandemic. I think home as a product category has just become a lot more important. So, you know, now Mm -hmm. we we work from home, we work out from home, we socialize at home. Um, And so I think like just imagining all of, those essentially kind of services that we can set up for you in the home is is part of how we view our vision. And, um, you know, I think of Airbnb as a great marketplace. It's a a great aggregator with a lot of choice. Uh, But for us, that's where customers can find us. Yeah, so I don't think I would have ever like had such a great idea for a company like this. But if I if I were to, um, I would have just definitely just thrown it back down because I think of Airbnb as like the only, um, you know, just house like rental company, um, you know, in the marketplace. So it's like, it's interesting how you developed an idea, you know, separate from Airbnb and, you know, in a long term, I guess, kind of. Yeah. um, Yeah. So, you know, I had the idea about five years ago now, and I think at that point, and maybe even now, you know, the thinking around Airbnb was it, it is a much more short term sort of solution, people travel, right? You go for a weekend, you go for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And in the rental market, when you're living somewhere for six to 12 months, I don't know if people really think about like Airbnb. I think with the pandemic, it's changed. You know, people are much more comfortable doing 
longer bookings on Airbnb. Um, but the other nuance here is that, you know, if you live somewhere for more than 30 days, you get tenants rights and it's actually a regulated industry and property managers have to adhere to all these rules and there's stuff like rent control and so on. Um, so I think of the larger rental market as something different from the travel market. Um, but that approach to finding ideas, um, you know, Paul Graham, who founded YC, Y Combinator, he's written a great essay called Schlepp Blindness, which I recommend everyone reads. And it's just in your day-to-day -day life, there are all these frustrations that you encounter, but we don't, we're almost blind to them now because we're just so used to it. And uh, we don't even really think of them as frustrations. Uh, but if you if you pay attention in the right way, you can have, actually find good startup ideas. And you know the biggest example, and I think the one he messes, uh, mentions in the essay is Stripe. And so back in 2009 or 2010, every time you were starting an online business and you were trying to take payments, you had to go to you had to go create a merchant account, and it would take several weeks, and you'd have to fill all these forms, and there'd be all this back and forth. And no one really thought like a payments company was a good idea back then because that's just the way the world was. And, you know, finance has its own regulations and you just got to deal with it. So, um, and that's kind of what happened with me. I, you know, I moved around and uh, my co-founder had a place he needed to rent out and there weren't really any good solutions. And I was like, hmm, maybe there's a, a different approach we can take to this. And of course, I, I researched the market. I, I know Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, quite well through the Y Combinator network. And I kind of ran the idea by him before we started. And, uh, you know, he was supportive. Oh, that's actually pretty interesting. But I heard you mention a little bit about the pandemic and how that has kind of increased the necessity for like this Zeus living type company. So how has the pandemic really affected your business overall, I guess? Yeah, in the near term, um, it was a negative impact. Last summer, we had tens of millions of dollars of contracted revenue that just basically disappeared. Um, and we had this growth plan. We were expanding. Uh, we were looking to expand internationally last year. And then, you know, with the pandemic and, and you know, the safety issues, we just couldn't do that. So we lost a lot of revenue. Um, if I was looking for a silver lining, I think this shift to remote work which has decoupled um, you know, people's location from where their offices are or their employers are, it's actually had a, the net effect of increasing mobility and people wanting to try living in maybe different neighborhoods within the same city or different cities altogether. And that's actually been helpful for us. And I remember in our data last April, LA just took off as a market. It got to like 90% occupancy pretty quickly. And it was really interesting to see because there were areas where we were seeing a you know, obviously, no one was going back to New York. Uh, no one was going to New York last last spring, but there were other places that people were going to. So it had a, a you know a near term sh uh, negative impact, and then over the longer term, I actually think it's uh, it, it's been a bit of a boost. Yeah. So how like, how did your business kind of like cope with the with the pandemic? You know, financially as well as like kind of managing managing your employees and you know, all that. It was, it was really hard. I mean, we are a company, our culture is very collaborative. There's a lot of camaraderie. We enjoy each other's company. We hang out together. And then we went fully remote and it's like, okay, this is a big adjustment. And we went fully remote and then we encountered, you know, all that lost revenue where we were getting all these cancellations and 
know, we're the housing provider for Facebook's internship program. And that disappeared. And so then it was a case of, oh, no, like, we can't, we have to like hunker down and, and, and retreat from our growth plans and actually go the opposite way and, and basically just think about survival because the capital markets and fundraising environment also changed. Um, and you can look at Airbnb, they had to raise at, I think it was a half of the valuation that they were previously at uh, from 2017. So I had to lay off about, I think it was about 150 people, which was really unpleasant. Um, I'd never, I'd never done layoffs before in my career. I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I had to do them on Zoom. And we, we actually had to do it twice, like a smaller layoff and then a larger one. And when I reflect back, that is one of my regrets or, or one of the mistakes we made. We did it on Zoom. It was kind of rushed. We didn't give people a chance to say goodbye properly. And we fixed it by the time we did the, the second layoff. And it was much more, um, you know, just a better process. But uh, yeah, that was tough to take. And especially, you know, I care a lot about my employees. And then the thought of having to lay people off, not really anything to do with their performance or anything they'd done. It was just what was happening in the world. And then in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so, so yeah, that was... That was challenging. But, you know, by May, by April and May, we found this resolve. We found this resilience. We found this kind of belief that, you know, we're just going to make it through no matter what. And then things started turning around and our occupancy numbers went up. And uh, and then we started building a bit of momentum. And, uh, you know, I've reflected on this with my, with my business partners. But when your back's against the wall, in some ways it was quite freeing because, we could just focus on what had to be done. There wasn't any debate. There was no sort of overly thinking about things or analyzing things. It's like, I need to do this, this, and this, or this company is not going to survive. So just do it. And that, that was kind of the attitude across the whole company. And, um, you know, it's been interesting transitioning back out of that now. And then, you know, some of these other discussions come back up, but there really was this sense of uh, we're in the trenches together and every startup has its comeback story. And, and, you know, that was ours. Wow, that's actually, I can't even begin to imagine how painful it must have been to, you know, like say goodbye to that many employees and friends. But I heard you mention Facebook when you were talking about you were the housing provider for them. Uh, can you expand a little bit on that? It sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I was going to share that. But, but basically, yeah, Facebook oh. is one of our customers. <laughs> and so, what you know, they run their big summer internship programs. I think they have. Yeah, hundreds, about that. they have hundreds yeah. of people come out to the Bay Area. And so we provide the housing. Um, but they're not the only company. Oh. There's many other tech companies that we house the interns in the summer. Yeah, if you, if you want to cut that out, like it's if you want to share that, just, just let us know. It's all good. All right. That's cool. So like, how, how, will your, how do you see your company kind of progressing in the future? You know, obviously after COVID, and, um, you know, all these, you know, layoffs that you've been doing and, you know, your revenue has been taking a hit. Like, how do you kind of see your company progressing um, after that, especially? I mean, one way to look at it is we basically lost a year, right, on our plans. Um, another way to look at it is the crisis forced us to adapt. And I, I think we're actually stronger for it. So, for example, in my mm -hmm. operations team, we had to cut 70% of the people and our metrics around customer satisfaction, they're back up to their pre-pandemic levels. And we figured out a way to run our portfolio with, you know, less than a third of the resources that we were previously using. 
Um, and we've seen improvements in productivity like that across the board in the company. And again, like, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and the software we had to write to just basically scale the business has helped us. So I think, um, I think we can draw a line um, uh, now and like move on. And we are starting to look at the future and, and our growth and, you know, getting to profitability. And when I look at the performance measures on around our profitability, we're actually on a four or five month streak of hitting profitability records uh, for these calendar months compared to our entire company's history. So we have some real momentum. Of course, you know, as international travel comes back, the vaccine rollout continues uh, and the country reopens and business travel comes back, th those are all tailwinds for us to take advantage of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds like you guys are on, you guys are home free. You guys sound like you're going to be really bright in the future. So I just wanted to ask, like, I noticed that you did go to Oxford, which is really prestigious, and you studied a little bit of philosophy as well. So did that really help you um, on this entrepreneurship journey? I think philosophy makes you a really, if you study philosophy, <clears throat> excuse me, I think you're really good at, um, <clears throat> sorry, if you study philosophy, I think you're really good at detecting bullshit. And I remember my professor mm -hmm. at Oxford told me that you have to have a very analytical mind and um, your ability to, you know, construct arguments, deconstruct arguments. Um, it just takes a leap, uh, especially when you study logic. So in that sense, I think, um, you know, all of the subjects I studied, politics, philosophy, economics, they, they equipped me with skills. Um, they're not sort of directly relatable to, to the startup. I mean, yes, I'm in the rental market, economic, an understanding of economics helps me. But, um, but I think the main thing about university for me was learning how to learn, learning how to learn quickly and operate under pressure and then building a network uh, of, of friends and, and, you know, who I've later worked with, hired, invested in and so on. Um, yeah, so before, you know, before even Zeus Living, you had, I feel, I think, two or, two or three other companies. Was it like, I think you had Octomatic and uh, Boso.com, yeah. am I correct? Yeah, so, so Boso, which stands for Buy or Sell Nine, was what I started at university as an undergrad. It was a marketplace for college kids to trade textbooks and other things. And I think a few people had similar ideas. Um, in England, we didn't really have Craigslist and uh -huh. stuff like that. Through that, got into Y Combinator yeah. and moved to the U.S. and, and started Automatic. Um, and that's actually when I joined forces with Patrick and John Collison, who later started Stripe. They had also applied to Y Combinator. They're, they were working on something called Shupper, which was, again, another sort of interpretation of, of, of eBay. And um, so, yeah, it was kind of the same startup, but a different iteration of it. Um, and then we ended up selling that company. So is Boso.com a Boso? I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Is it we Boso used to say Boso, Boso with the English accent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Boso. So is it? Is it still no, operational? No, no, I don't think it is. Um, yeah. Okay. So how how did you like kind of? So I know you know you were in, I think you majored in economics and you know philosophy, but I feel like you you need, you need like computer science knowledge as well. Like where did you kind of get that computer science knowledge to? Uh, 
you know, build companies like this, especially, you know, like Basso and Octomatic. Um, yeah. When I was, yeah. I think, 15, in England, we do work experience. I'm not sure what it's called in the US or if it's the same thing. And I was lucky enough to work at a financial training company called In Markets. And there was this brilliant entrepreneur who mm-hmm. studied at MIT, who's from India originally. And he had all this software to train finance folks and it was on CD-ROMs and he was basically moving it online. And I remember one of the first things I did was um, I had to make it all Y2K compliant and I had to go through all the code for any potential bugs. So I I wouldn't call that like Uh real hardcore coding or engineering, but I was familiar enough with Mm -hmm. how it worked. And I remember back then it was like cold fusion and and, and these other sort of like... um, frameworks that that I would use. Then when I came to San Francisco, one of the reasons that Paul Graham invested in myself and my cousin Hodge was we were learning how to code. And so, you know, just going through the Ruby textbooks and uh, trying to build stuff. And I recognized how important it was to be technically literate if I'm going to, you know, be an entrepreneur in the tech industry. Um, So, you know, the, the sort of mathematical part of programming and the analytical part of programming I get. Um, and then I, I never became like a fully fledged coder and I could do front end gen- engineering and fix bugs and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really important uh-huh. to, to have a basic uh, understanding and basically just tried to teach myself. So that software kind of gave you that, you know, that glimpse that you needed yeah and then and then also kind of just be able to have intelligent conversations with your engineers right and then just truly understand (laughs) uh the implications of the choices you're making you know what languages you use etc yeah i heard you mention that you had work experience um, in the financial company did that did that kind of lead you to working at deutsche bank like i think you did for a couple years um not really uh, you know, the, that, that work experience I did gave me an exposure to tech because it was, it was around mm-hmm. the time of the dot-com bubble. And even though I was in London, the same sort of exuberance was happening there. So I got a little taste of startup life. But mm-hmm. Deutsche happened because, honestly, frankly speaking, someone just told me it's a good way to make money. And um, <laughs> I grew up in a single parent household. And so I definitely, when I was young, had this goal of like getting to financial independence and wanting to be able to like take care of my, my mom and my family. And so I didn't put too much thought into it. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to go to Deutsche and get into finance. And again, I, I was strong at math. I actually really liked, I was on the global market side. So not sort of investment banking where you do insane hours. It was much more in the sales trading where you understand risk uh, and macroeconomics and stuff. And I got into that, but then I did that for my gap year. So I did nine months at Deutsche before I went to university. And then I went Mm -hmm. backpacking around the world for six months. And then I did the internship program while I was at school. And and then around that time, I was kind of, I was kind of like not really enjoying the culture, at least back then that existed within finance and, you know, the values of the people and how, how just that whole industry works. And when I was exposed to, you know, more the Silicon Valley culture and startup world, I was just really drawn to it. I was like, oh, man, this is where I want to be. Um, I was lucky enough to get a trip to San Francisco a couple of months before finals. 
Um, and I came out here and I saw the Google campus and I saw Max Levchin's incubator, the one that started Yelp. And a few saw some other startups and then I was just set. I was like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but one way or the other, I'm getting to San Francisco. So you mentioned your, uh, the backpacking across the world. Did that kind of give you like the sense of like freedom and like, you could kind of like give you a taste of it and like what you kind of wanted financially, I guess? Uh, you know, I think it gave me independence, but I think it gave me a really good sort of worldview. And, and I remember when I went on that trip, I kind of concluded that like pe- people around the world were pretty much all the same and, you know, the media and the news and you can read all this stuff and be led to believe that people are different in different countries, but no, we're all kind of the same. And my mom was a travel agent. So growing up, I actually got to travel a lot. And uh, it was just something I really wanted to do and the, the adventure of it. And, I, you know, I was like, when else will I get to do this in my life and doing it when I'm young? Um, so it, get, it gave me a perspective on many different countries and, and I'm, I met lots of people. And, you know, I, I truly believe that you can't really understand your own country or where you live and where you've grown up until you've lived in another country. And you get you get just a completely different perspective. And, you know, I, I think English culture or British culture is very different to American culture. And I've been here so long now that I'm kind of forgetting the difference. But but it's true. Um, and so maybe I just contradicted myself because I said people are the same <laughs> everywhere. But cultures, <laughs> cultures are different. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really glad I did that. Uh, and I do think it fed into a little bit of the desire to build Zeus because Again, as a kid, I had this dream of wanting to own real estate in a few major cities around the world with the motivation of the, the flexibility and mobility it gives me. So, for example, if I wanted to spend the summer in Europe, in London, I could do that. If I wanted to go to Asia for a bit, I could do that. If I wanted to be bi-coastal in the States, I could do that. And I didn't really have – it wasn't you know, so much about building a real estate empire. It was more just that flexibility and then I've realized I've been on this long journey, but that's basically what I'm building with Zeus. And that lifestyle that maybe previously was only accessible to the 1%, um, you know, I kind of want to make it accessible to anyone. Yeah, man, like the, some of the goals that you achieved are some of the goals that I currently have. And, you know, personally, I've been I've been backpacking a few times like here that's in the great. United States. Um, and... And like you know, you said you went backpacking for you know six months. And that's 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 something I also want to do. Like I just want to know how you kind of, um, how you kind of funded. Yeah, that, I mean you know, that was so. I worked at Deutsche Bank in my gap year before I went on the trip. So I basically worked and then saved money, um, and that's what oh, a lot of people okay. do in England. I think there's more of a culture of taking gap years, and maybe in Europe. So you work, you get work experience. Um, you know, if it can be relevant to the career you want to build even better. Um, and I know, you know, sometimes with Indian mm-hmm. parents or immigrant parents, you know, they really want you on that education path. And I remember my mom, I don't think my mom was that happy. She never stopped me, but it was kind of like, why are you doing this? But again, it's interesting. By the time I got to university, I felt like I could tell a difference between the kids who'd taken a year off to travel and to, to get work experience and then the kids who'd literally come out of high school and gone yeah. straight to college. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how I did it. And, and there's also these uh, round-the-world tickets. I don't know if you know about them. But if you look no, it up, like some of these airlines, they're really not that expensive. So I think it was like 
so maybe like 600 pounds or 800 pounds, you basically get a round the world ticket. And I remember I. So what is, what does that mean? So, so they give you, uh, so I think my one, um, I booked it with the Virgin Atlantic and Singapore. And I think it was Air New Zealand kind of alliance. So I bought, uh, I paid money for this ticket and it was 28,000 miles. And you can basically, you go to the travel agent or you look on your map and you just plot out a route. Now you have some restrictions, which is basically you either go due east or due west. You kind of can't go back on yourself. And and then like when I was, I was in New Zealand, I had to pick either North America or South America. I kind of couldn't do both because of the, the limitations. But I remember my route was I did London to Bombay. Um, uh, oh, Bombay's, cool. a, like Bombay's Bombay? an amazing city. Um, lots of energy. And uh, I'm oh. a big fan of it. I think it, it's kind of like the, the New York of the East. But I haven't been to, you know, some, some of the larger cities in China. So I can't compare it to that. But, but yeah, so then I went quickly. Oh. Just I went India, Singapore. Uh, I think I went to Bali, Australia, New Zealand then uh, America, Canada, and then back to England. Bali is actually like, you know, one of like the, one of my goals. To Loved it. How, how did you like Bali? I know it's extremely, you know, cheap. Loved it. The people and, are really you know, welcoming. And again, they, they really like Indian people. Um, but it's, it's good food. <laughs> yeah. It's relaxed. I, I feel like it's becoming very, sort of becoming like a spiritual destination and people go there and do yoga and, and all these mm-hmm. retreats. But um, I really enjoyed it. I recommend it. So, okay, let's, if you had to choose, what were at least, uh, let's say, what, what were two of your, like, your most favorite, you know, experiences or destinations that you've uh, done on Thailand your Thailand was number one, I'd say by a long shot. Um, uh-huh. I remember I was only going to go for 10 days. And, and the other benefit of these tickets is that they're completely flexible on the dates. So you can just like keep extending or changing. Uh-huh. And I was there, uh, I was on this island called Koh Penang, and it's where they have the full moon party. Um which, you know, again, this was a long time yeah. ago. I'm, I'm old. It was in um, 2002. But Thailand was my number one. Just the mix of mm-hmm. natural beauty, the climate, uh, how welcoming the locals are, the fact that there's a lot of other people traveling. Um, Thailand was awesome. And yeah. then I think the other one for me that was really fun was New Zealand. I did this thing called a Kiwi experience, um, where it's more kind of like there's these coaches or buses and they have these routes along North Island and South Island, and you just jump on and jump off, and there's all these activities you can do. Um, but New Zealand, again, that mix of natural beauty and then, like, a good backpacker community, um, those, were, those were my two favorite. Uh, yeah, while we're on the topic of, you know, traveling and all that, I heard you say earlier, like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to get to San Francisco one way or the other. So how did you actually end up doing it? Like coming from England to San Francisco is a pretty big like jump. Um, getting into Y Combinator was a big kind of forcing function. And, mm. um, you know, I wanted to anyway, but that helped convince Harj, my cousin, who's my co-founder. And uh, I haven't really talked too much about this publicly, uh-huh. but we just got on a plane and came here. And, and I remember the first ticket we booked, I thought I was being really smart. You're allowed to come for 90 days on a waiver. And I booked a trip for 88 days. And, you know, we're doing the Y Combinator program. It's 12 weeks. And 
I was employed out of England. We had a startup in England, so you know nothing, nothing illegal. But I remember as soon as I got to the airport, it's like two brown guys showing up at the airport, <laughs> going on a twelve-week training program. We were just sent to secondary straight away, and and then they're like, "Oh, you've got yeah. a business?" Like, and then they're like, "Show me your business card." And of course, I didn't have a business card. Um, but they led us through, and then we started work on a visa in parallel. And I ended up getting the O1 visa, which is um, alien of exceptional ability for the business category. And you know, I had to do references and show that I'd been in the press and all this other stuff. But it's actually the way that many founders have come into the U.S. And now I have a green card. And uh, but yeah, it was it was kind of a risk and it was kind of scary. Uh, but literally, we just kind of willed it into existence. Oh. Wow. That's. That seems like that's, that's a very spontaneous thing. I, th- I don't think I'd ever do that. But um, you know, I, I know you mentioned that like, you know why Combinator. I want to. I kind of. I'm you know. I'm really interested in like the process that you have to you have to go through to uh, you know become. I guess. One of the uh, no, it's called being a founder, part. and then they invest in your company. So they they're basically okay, backing okay. in companies. I mean, yeah. You. I mean, you need to start a startup, right? And so I think. Having an idea that yeah, you're excited yeah. about, having a team, these things help. And then like proving that you have some sort of tenacity to, to get going or being really resourceful. The other essay that um, I recommend people read, it's called um, Re- Relentlessly Resourceful. And um, Paul Graham wrote it to try and encapsulate what are the characteristics he looks for in founders and distill it right down to its essence. So if you're relentlessly resourceful, that's what they're looking for. Um, and then, you know, it's the other things like, why do people want this? And can you prove that you can get customers and, and hopefully make money? Th- those are the main criteria. And, and of course, you know, if you're determined as a founder, that that's a big, big part of it as well. I heard like the Y Combinator, right? They basically are kind of like angel investors in startups. And I also read somewhere that you are actually an angel investor in several startups. So did the Y, like, you know, joining the Y Combinator area, did that kind of um, inspire you to become an angel investor in other startups? Yeah, it did. I mean, again, there's an insane amount of money to be made in, in like the tech world. And actually investing is incredibly high risk, um, right? And you should almost have the yeah. attitude of it. It's kind of like philanthropy. But what happened with us was the first people that invested in us, like Paul Graham at Y Combinator, Paul Bookite, who created Gmail. There is also this kind of sense of like, I just want to back you because I believe in you. And then after we sold our first company and I had a bit of money, I met entrepreneurs and I had this sense of, yeah, I want to back you. And, you know, you kind of need the mindset that when you make the investment, you're never going to see that money again because most startups fail. Mm -hmm. Uh, But every now and then, you know, you can get lucky and and a company can do really well. And um, I think I have a knack for meeting or getting to know talented founders. Um, And honestly, I would have done even better if I'd had just invested in all of my friends, um, because I've seen the companies (laughs) that they've gone on to create. Um, But yeah, so there's a bit of a like, sort of philanthropic kind of angle to it. and just like uh, paying it uh-huh. sort of back for the people that invested in you and paying it forward into the next generation. Yeah, so I feel like you've already kind of partially answered a question I was going to ask. But like how, like how effective do you think that, you know, the connections that you're making, the people you meet during Y Combinator 
are you know are useful for you know the investments you make or um or just your own uh, uh, the network's incredibly you know, powerful um i still have a bond with all of the founders uh-huh. that went through the program back in 2007 um and you kind of just you go through this stressful process because it's three months long you have to get up on stage and present a demo day and it kind of um yeah it does create this connection uh when you go through it with other founders in your batch of course the program has grown a ton now and they've they've created smaller groups and it's a little bit like uh, i guess cohorts at business school but but there is a there's a database that they have in a forum where you can post um requests for help uh candidates you're looking to hire there's a database where you can review investors and just check like you know make sure investors are uh, people you want to work with so so yeah the network is um is amazing and that's one of the really smart things that they did was they created a network effect in in an industry where there really wasn't one before so i did notice that when you're talking about y combinator and your personal investments you said that most startups you know kind of fail sometimes so what really made you want to take that risk and start your own startup as opposed to working in a corporate job it's a great question um i also learned about myself the importance of introspection and i also just realized that like i really really value autonomy and you know when you're a founder you do well you're not completely autonomous because you're accountable to your investors and your board and your customers but you do have a higher degree of freedom to work on what you think is interesting or what you think is impactful than maybe you do in a corporate job so um again in hindsight I was like look I want to take a risk when I'm young and before I have commitments is the right time to do it um I think that is maybe just a part of my personality is that um I'm not scared of risk and I like I like the adventure and and maybe it's just some inner belief and conviction that I'll I'll do well out of it uh but you know that that's not for everyone and sometimes I'm like you know I think Elon Musk said it that doing a startup is like eating glass it can be really hard and really challenging and what I went through with Zeus at the pandemic a year ago no one really goes through that in in a corporate job um I don't think so uh there's pluses and minuses but i think yeah. the important thing for me was that i i introspected i really tried to understand who i was what motivated me what are my values how do i want to spend my time who do i want to spend my time with and uh and then i sort of decided that startup was the best path um i would caution against i think you know startups are getting into fashion now and a lot of people are doing them cuz maybe it's a new trendy thing to do and back in the day it used to be get into yeah. banking or whatever it really is hard it really is a, a, mm-hmm. a challenge and so be very careful to about doing a startup um because everyone else is doing it i think you need a bit of a mission because if the motivation is just money there are other ways to make money that are better on a risk adjusted basis and i learned that after my first startup i was like man yeah. that was that one was tough um and before i did the second startup i really made sure that my goals my motivations this time weren't around money it was more about what i wanted to build and the change i wanted to see in the world and then you know the growth and everything else that comes from doing a startup so you would probably say like that first um that first you know 
your I guess your boso.com, your startup, I guess that kind of made you realize that uh, it's not really all about money. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know, I, I bought a house for my mom and that felt great. And then I went and bought some nice clothes because I'd never bought like nice clothes really before. And I traveled, I went to the World Cup in South Africa. I'm a big soccer yeah. fan. I spent five weeks there. That was amazing. And um and then I remember I was about to buy a car and I kind of had my eyes on getting like a, it was a Mercedes SL 500. And then I was doing the test drive. Yeah. And then after like five or 10 minutes, I got kind of really bored of it. And I was like, wait, this is going to be a really stupid use of money. And so I didn't buy the car. And then I put that money back into investing yeah. in startups. And I, I think I also bought Tesla stock back then. And so, cool. yeah, I got to, yeah, I got to experience <laughs> a little bit of, you know, some financial freedom, but you do just reset very, very quickly and you go yeah. back to your set point, which is just your normal level of happiness. And um, yeah, and, you know, again, I, I, I felt happy that I could help people in my family. Uh, but then after that, like, you know, I, I, I was bored and I was like, I want to I want to use my brain and I want to do stuff. So did you have any mentors uh, growing up, uh, you know, growing up and, you know, motivating you to, I guess, start your own business? Not really, Apart not growing up. I mean, I, I didn't grow up wanting to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be a pilot. Um, and then someone told me that when you get short-sighted, you're no longer allowed. So, and then every kid that grows up in England wants to be a professional soccer player. And then I wasn't good enough. Um, and then, so I went on to the banking path. Um but when I got to Silicon Valley, I definitely got mentors. And Ev Williams, who started Twitter, was one of my first ones, where he gave me a lot of time when I was still an undergrad at university. Um, I became the president of a student entrepreneurship club, and then I got to meet him because each year Oxford has this conference called Silicon Valley Comes to Oxford. Um, and then, like, some of my investors and Paul Graham. And, and so, yeah, I built, I built a network, but it kind of happened once I got to Silicon Valley. Do you like have any kind of future endeavors in mind, you know, apart from uh, Zeus living? And yeah, you know, I mean, I want to take angel investments. Zeus all the way. I want it to be an international company. I want to be in the top 100 metros worldwide. I want to take it public um, and have this as a company that's, you know, around for, for the rest of my lifetime. Um, outside of startups and tech and my company, yes, I do have some interests. Uh, I've always thought, like, um, I used to visit India a lot growing up that I would like to do something to help people there. I got into a private school when I was eight through a scholarship, and they paid for my education until I got to, to Oxford. And I was like, I want to give back to that school. Um, so, yeah, there, there's various other areas that I'm kind of curious about and intrigued by. Um, but my focus is on the company. Uh, you know, one of the other things that I did after I sold the first company was I dabbled in sketch comedy and theater. So I was in Vancouver and I I just auditioned on a whim and um, I ended up getting an agent and doing that. And so, yeah, yeah I have a bunch of interests, but, uh, you know, the main goal is getting Zeus to, to a good place. You ever thinking of, you know, ever starring, like not starring, but I'd say, you know, ever working in like the film industry? I haven't thought about it ethics? seriously, no. But I think, um, you know, I've seen... I've seen Jeff Skoll executive produce movies. So he was, I think, one of the co-founders of eBay. And these are movies that have some kind of social impact angle or uh, just telling stories. 
Um, so, for example, a recent movie I watched is Judas and the Black Messiah, which is about Fred Hampton, who was in the Black Panthers. Um, it's an amazing performance by Daniel Kaluuya. And so, yeah, if, if there was an opportunity at some point to, to be involved in telling great stories, I, I, I'd be really interested in that. So I, you, I heard you love soccer, right? And yeah. Uh, we've talked to a couple of other entrepreneurs and I was just wondering, so do you think, you know, buying a small soccer club, if you got the amount of money, you think that would be worth a worthy investment? Hell yeah. Actually, yeah, that's something I really want to do. I don't know if it will happen, but I think if you, so I've watched some of these like soccer documentaries. There's one on Netflix called Sunderland Till I Die, which is about a club in England called, uh, in Sunderland. And uh, Amazon produced a series about Manchester City and Tottenham. And I look at it and I'm like, you know, clubs in England, they didn't really start off as businesses. They were community centers. People hung out and they played football. It was amateur. And then it professionalized. And now the growth of the popularity of the English Premier League, like it's it's not even really like you have customers. They're, you have like religious followers um, and believers in you. And so... I don't want to be super cynical and capitalistic about it, but I, I would love that idea of you, you could pick an underachieving club and then run it right, invest in it right, be, be somewhat data-driven, and then bring it to the top. Um, and I love the sort of promotion relegation system that you have in England. Um, I mean, other clubs have been doing this. Um, and I think Billy Bean is the famous Oakland Athlet Athletics, I think, manager or coach who was data-driven and, uh, you know, took them quite far. So yeah, that is something I would love to do if I could is like get a, get a team or club from the lower leagues and divisions mm -hmm. and then help them climb up. Wait, I actually <laughs> had one last question. Hopefully my Wi-Fi yeah. permits me to ask this. But so I know that like social media is pretty big nowadays, right? Would you ever consider, you know, making a YouTube channel or possibly trying to venture out and be like grow your social medias could that help your company yeah i think it's i think if you're a ceo you probably should have an audience um i did a tweet storm over new year's that got a bit of traction um but it can also feel distracting from the main job which is you know making my customers happy and growing my business so i, I kind of struggle with that one a little bit Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously Elon Musk is an example of someone who's made an audience and Tesla doesn't really spend any, any money on marketing. Um, yeah. and Gary Tan, who's, uh, my board member, he's created a YouTube channel that's done really well and he's built an audience. So I think it's worth it. I think it can pay off. Um, personally speaking, like just figuring out the time management piece of it, uh, I, I'd have to do, but um, yeah, I think it, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, we're, gl we're really glad to have you. Yeah, on. no worries, man. Pleasure is um, mine. Pleasure talking to you. Trying to pay you. it forward to the next Online generation. Obviously. And, um, yeah, good and good and you guys are being proactive and doing uh -huh. this. Um, and yeah, I'm sure our paths mm -hmm. will cross again in the future.